Well, it is great to see you. Hope you brought with you a Bible. If you did, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 4, we're going to finish up the, uh, the fourth chapter this morning in John. If you did not bring uh, one with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that as a gift. We, we uh, love the Bible. It's God's word uh, written for us. And so we think it's very important, not only when we gather that we're reading it, but when we scatter that we're reading it as well. So if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home with you. Uh, but uh, John chapter four, um, it is a, uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, and, and this story just continues, okay? Um, now, each, uh, each month, in fact, if you're a guest here, if you're kind of wondering what sort of goes on here, there's actually one thing that we do. Um, each month, there's a little passage from John that we're seeking to memorize, okay? And the intent of that is to plant it deep within our hearts so that there's an anchor, okay? And so for April, the passage is John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. So let's practice that here this morning as a church family. You ready? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if you were here last week when we actually looked at the first 42 verses of John chapter 4, what we saw in this passage is that every single one of us literally is on a treasure hunt. All of us, God's word tells us that we're all treasure hunters. We're all looking for something that's going to satisfy our heart. And in this case, it was a woman and there was a well. And what he's talking about there is this, is that everything that you and I, we find alluring in this world. And there were things this last week that you found to be very alluring. You thought, if I could just maybe perhaps invest some time and energy into that, maybe that would satisfy my soul. And every single one of those things, though they may satisfy, they satisfy for about an hour or two, just like water. But what Jesus is saying here is this, is that if we'll be filled with the Holy Spirit by trusting Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and as we seek to walk with him by believing him at his word, that God's Spirit will literally live within our heart and give us joy and contentment and peace, not just for an hour or two, but for eternal life. And so we memorize these things intentionally to give us an anchor. So at that moment of temptation or at that moment of pause, that we have something to remember. You know what? This is a good thing. This is a God's gift. But this is not the thing. The thing is Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's pray together. Father, as we look uh, now to John chapter 4, we believe that what we're reading, even the contents, it's a miracle. That by your spirit that you incline John to write these things down some 50 years after they actually occurred. But not only that, but by the power of your spirit, you preserve these words so that we have a copy of them even today in our language. And it is a remarkable thing. And so we give you all the praise for that and pray, God, Lord, the very things that you tell us in your word that we should be praying for when it comes to these moments, that we would pray for them, that you would help us to believe this that you would help us to understand this, that you would help us to apply this, that you would be our teacher and our tutor, and that you would do more than just information here, that you would bring transformation to our life, that you would change us literally from the inside out. So would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus Christ alone? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, John chapter 4 sort of introduces a new um, section of John that kind of creates from time to time what I would call a holy hush. 
Now, for all of us as people, we live in this world and, and, and uh, there's, there's, a, there's a mild level of chatter that just simply comes from being alive. When you're in relationships, when you're having lunch, um, sometimes the various conversations we have, they're not deep and meaningful. Sometimes it's just kind of chatter and we kind of laugh and snicker. But, but, but the fact is, 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 is sometimes our eyes or our heart, they're confronted with something that's so unreal, that's so sacrificial or so generous or so courageous that it kind of creates a collective pause even when we're with other people. So instead of the sort of the endless banter of our little joking and kidding, all of a sudden we see something and we feel inclined to be quiet for a moment. And this happened in this text. It also happened, it's happened to all of us. We've, we've all sort of had these sorts of experiences. Last fall, I went with my boys down to Fort Bragg with about 30 of their friends. And, uh, and so we, we were able to, to see all kinds of wonderful things down there. But, um, but lots of things that, that, that really told a story about someone else's sacrifice. Incredible museums and videos and pictures and stories of, of, um, of soldiers, men and women, uh, who gave of their life to sacrifice for people that maybe they didn't even know. It was interesting that you walk around with 30 boys, there's a whole lot of chatter that's going on, right? There's a lot of joking and teasing, but all of a sudden it was, it was interesting that from time to time throughout that weekend, we would be confronted with something that was so sacrificial, that was so courageous, that everyone would just became quiet without anyone having to say, hey, everyone be quiet. And the same thing happens. It starts to happen here in John chapter 4. It's, it's sort of interesting what takes place is that, is that as we progress through John, our happy little stroll will more and more be interrupted by escalating tension that's going to eventually lead to the greatest sacrifice of all time. And that's when Jesus Christ went to the cross. And so what we're told here is in John chapter 4, if you remember verse 1, that Jesus who's in south, right, he's, he, and he wants to get to the north of the country. So he said, here I am. I'm going to go to Galilee. In order to get to Galilee from where he was, he had one or two options. He could go through Samaria or he could go around Samaria. If you were here last week, most people went around Samaria, but he says he had to go through Samaria. And there in Samaria, there were people that were relegated to sort of the shadows of Jewish culture. There was a racial issue. There was shadows that were so dark in people's shame and people's race and people's hatred and people's shame and in their own sin that that, that these people were there and they were not worshiping God. But God's mission was that all people would be able to worship him. And so Jesus, instead of going around Samaria, like most of the Jews did at the time, he said he had to go through Samaria. And there he meets this woman. And, and he begins to open up her eyes by showing her things about herself that he knew because he's the son of God. And all of a sudden she gets so stirred that she has to run back to town. And she runs back to town and says, I think I may have found the Messiah. He's told me everything about my life, and it's all true. So we, what we read last week is all of these people from Sychar, this town in Samaria, they all run out to Jesus. And this is what it says in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard with our 
own ears, our own selves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So after two days, he departed for Galilee. So now he's leaving Samaria and he's finishing his journey. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, it says that the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one o'clock PM in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and his whole household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to this northern region up there in Galilee. Now, as we go through John, you cannot forget the two bookends. He tells us why he's including every single one of these stories. The last bookend is in John chapter 20. And there he says this, look, I've written all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing you might have life in his name. But the front bookend is John chapter one, verse 14. And there it says that the word, the son of God, Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And our eyes have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so what John is doing in each of these passages, in fact, if you actually take notes, uh, some do. And if you went back and you look, most of the points that I've sought to teach, actually, they all begin with the word Jesus. And the reason is because in the gospel of John, John's stated purpose is not to tell us something about ourselves; It's to tell us something about Jesus. That in seeing Jesus and understanding Jesus is that we're going to learn not only something about him, but we're going to learn something about us and how do we live in right relationship with him. So I want to show you three more things in this passage about Jesus. The first is that Jesus wants to expose the motives of our heart. He wants to expose the motives of our heart. Now, listen, God cares about what you do, but he cares more about why you do them. He cares so deeply about your heart and transforming your heart and my heart, because if he can get a hold of our heart, he can get a hold of our actions. Our actions simply spring from our heart. And the motives are the very thing that literally propel the heart forward. Inclinations. I want that. I'm motivated by that. And so God cares deeply about our motives. Now I want to show you where you find this in this own, um, in these amazing verses. Okay. We're told that two days later, Jesus leaves Samaria for Galilee. And John wants to tell us why. Did you notice that the very next sentence, verse 44, it's in parentheses. What that means is that John is not telling the story. He's telling us as an editor 
to give clarity, not only to the what Jesus is doing, but why he's doing it. And he says there, for. Now, the word for can also be translated because. In other words, Jesus is in Samaria. He's there two days. And it says he leaves because Jesus himself had said with his own mouth, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Well, guess where his hometown is? It's in Galilee. So what's happening? What's happening is Jesus is intentionally leaving a people who are honoring him in order to get to a people he knows will dishonor him. Now, who does this? Our politicians don't do this. What happens with our politicians is that if they understand and believe that they've already lost the state, if there's no way to win that state, they're going to invest no more time and resource in order to get 22% instead of 21%, they've lost. So they move on. They cut their losses. But Jesus is not a politician. Jesus' stated goal is not to increase his popularity among people. Jesus' stated goal is to die for sin. Now, this becomes really, really important if you understand this, that Jesus' plan was intentionally to expose himself to escalating tension that would eventually lead him to a cross in order to ransom us from sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So this is the tension that we're going to find as believers in Jesus Christ as we, as we walk through John, is that we're going to find ourselves rooting for his life, but needing his death. We're going to get angry when people mistreat this Jesus. We're going to root for him. We're going to try to plead with people with our, with our own minds and our own hearts and say, don't you see, this is the son of God. He's come to help you. And yet at the very same time, we need Jesus to go through the tension that escalates to the point of him dying on a cross. Otherwise, you and I can't go to heaven. And this is the tension of the gospels is that we root for him, but we also need him to die. If it was left to us, it probably would never get done. That's why it's not. It says in Acts chapter 2, it says, All this went down according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If you notice, Jesus is the one then who's initiating the tension. He could stay down in a people that are honoring him. He's not received an invitation from the people in Galilee. Say, hey, come, let us mistreat you. They don't even care he's there. He's the one who left a place of honor to move to a place where he would be dishonored. And then it says this. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. You think, well, John, you got the whole thing wrong here. See, he's not being dishonored, he's being welcomed. But do you see the word so? It starts with the word so. Some of your Bibles may say therefore. They're the same word, therefore so. In other words, this is really important, okay? John is not a beat reporter who's covering live events and is being surprised when things are happening. He's not over at a street, right, with a, with, 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 with a microphone in hand and saying, well, but you know, Sally, this really is amazing. Here, here, here Jesus said that he was going to be dishonored, but wow, he came to Galilee and everybody's honoring him. Everybody's welcoming him. This is not real time. This is 50 years later. 
And so when he's saying Jesus had to leave Galilee in order to go to a place where he would be dishonored, and then it says, so or therefore they welcomed him, what John is telling us is that the kind of welcome the people in Galilee gave him, Jesus considered to be tremendously dishonorable. Now this becomes really, really important because people came out to see him. Let me put it another way. They came to church that day. And there is a way to honor him. I'm sorry, there's a way to welcome him in a way that honors him. And there's also a way to welcome him, apparently, that dishonors him. It's really important for us to be able to differentiate one from the other. You see, there is a kind of welcoming that believes in Jesus and kneels in adoration. And then there's another kind of welcoming that does not believe in Jesus, but is excited to see a great show. And we're told here, it says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast. Now the feast they're talking about is the Passover that he was at in John chapter two, where he started to do signs and miracles. Some of the people from Galilee had traveled down there to be a part of the Passover feast at the temple. They'd seen his miracles. They'd gone back up. Not only have they've seen him, but they've talked about him. Now all of a sudden, Jesus, right? He's the, he's the showstopper. He's up in the region and every comes, all these people come out to welcome him. And at this point, an official arrives. He says, a royal official. He's a, he, he works for Herod up in Galilee. He's got a sick son. And he comes to Jesus and he needs a miracle. And this is perfect for the people. This is why they've all gathered together to welcome Jesus. They've got a show in the making. I can hear someone say, hey, everyone go get your lawn chairs and some popcorn. The show's about to start. We've got Jesus, the miracle worker. We've got a dad with a sick kid. This is going to be awesome. You're going to love this. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks to this man who's asking him to come heal his son. And he gives a rebuke. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, you have to understand what's happening here, okay? When he says, unless you see and you believe, those are both plural pronouns. In other words, he's not talking to the man, he's talking to the crowd. So, for example, if I would have walked up here and you guys would have all been standing and I didn't say, hey, go ahead and have a seat. Eventually, you'd all be standing like, well, what should we do? Well, let's just say someone in the front said, hey, Brian, do you want us to sit down? If I, said, if I looked at that person and said, yeah, go ahead and sit down, everyone would know I'm talking to everybody. And this is what's happening here in this text. He's talking to one dad, but he's talking to the entire crowd. And what he's saying to them is this. You're all show seekers. You still see nothing personally at stake when I claim to be God. You still don't see your need for a savior. You, you still don't see the moral chasm in your heart that's separating you from God. And that only I can bridge that chasm. You, you keep falling over my words. But instead of kneeling and believing and worshiping when you're on the ground, you'd get up, dust yourself off and move on as if nothing's happened. 
You're not here to know me and to worship me. You're here to use me and be amused by me. And here we all are. Have you ever asked the question, what would Jesus, if Jesus got here, and if he could see every single motive, because he does in our heart, what would he see as the ultimate treasure while we've got it today? See, the application of this point is very simple. It's let's identify the treasure of our heart. Every one of us, or we're all treasure seekers. Every single one of us has very specific hopes for what lies underneath the X on our treasure map. We're all walking around. We're saying, I'm going to go and do this in order for this to take place. And there is a motive. There is a treasure for why you came today. And Jesus cares deeply about what that is. It literally is the difference in how you welcome him and how you honor him. So let me ask you, what would Jesus see as our desired treasure for the reason that we're all leaning towards him today? Or let me ask you this way. If Jesus could tell us what your motive is, what would he tell us as to why you came to church today? You see, there's people all over the country and all the world that are going to be in church today leaning towards God. You could lean away from him and not be here. And so all of us have leaned in. We've all, in a sense, welcomed him. We've already sang four songs to him. We've got to ask the question, did he see that as a welcome of honor or of dishonor? You see, some people are going to show up in a church today and they're going to hope that their presence is going to bring the lessening of guilt. Maybe I can just reduce the amount of guilt that I experienced for what I've done the last week or last month or last year. Maybe it'll be worth it. And that's the treasure that they're seeking today. For some people, it might be just flat out heaven. They're still thinking, I've got to earn this thing. And so if I just collect enough good works and church seems like a good work, and so I'm going to come to church and maybe one day that this is going to help contribute to my balance and it's going to fight off everything that I've done that's wrong. Some people have come for direction. You know, you got a big decision or something's in front of you. You're like, I just, I just hope the preacher just stumbles over what my problem is and just speaks to it today. Some people might just be flat out blessing. You got a big deal, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, you say, well, if I come to church, I'll scratch his back. Maybe he'll throw me some bones on Tuesday or Wednesday and I'll seal the deal. And people do this. We have done this. Every one of us has a treasure. Sometimes our motive for being here is really, really honorable, and sometimes it's not. And Jesus cares about what that is. You see, we do not honor Jesus by viewing him as a Pez dispenser, where you flip up his head and pull out a candy. We only honor Jesus when we see him as the treasure, when he literally is the treasure. He is the thing that we want. So I would ask you this question just to dive a little bit deeper. Let's talk about your motivation in being in heaven for a second. If you could live in heaven forever, like real heaven, forever, with no sickness, no fear, no pain, all your favorite people, all your favorite foods, all your favorite activities, without a shred 
of sin. Could you live in that heaven forever if Jesus weren't there? If you would answer, yeah, I think I could live there forever if he's not there, then the New Testament would say that you've literally missed the whole point. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the treasure of the redeemed. He's not the candy machine. He's the candy. He's the one that we get. And all of God's good gifts to us, whether it's blessing or direction or forgiveness or the absence of guilt or heaven, all these are gifts that he does give us. But every one of them, they're only good to the extent to us that they help us to enjoy him more. Do you know why heaven's heaven instead of hell? It's because Jesus is there. That's why forgiveness is such a gift. It's not so that you get to sleep better at night. It's that your relationship has been restored with your creator that allows a peace that allows you to sleep at night. Every good gift is only good to the extent that it places you in the presence of the greatest treasure on the earth, and that is Jesus Christ. So I would ask you, is being with Jesus why you came today? And if it's not, he knows and he still loves you. And he would just tell us as a body, confess your sin and I'll forgive you. And so the first thing is that Jesus wants to expose the motives of our heart. Second thing I want you to see is that Jesus has unrivaled power over sickness. Unrivaled power over sickness. I want you to think about this for a second. Here in this crowd, there's a dad. Oh, he's an official. But no matter what your occupation is, if you have a sick child, you don't care about your occupation. You care about being a dad. And he's got a sick son. And he's on his deathbed, even though he's young. And he's walked 16 miles from Capernaum to Cana and it's only 1 p.m. in the afternoon. So he got started early. He's got to be tired. He's got to be relentless, anxious. We're told that he begins asking Jesus, would you come back and heal my son? You need to be there to get this done. And concerned only with his son's life, he literally drives over Jesus' public rebuke to the crowd like a worn down speed bump. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. Sir, would you please come with me to heal my son? And without any fanfare or any pizzazz whatsoever, Jesus says, go, your son will live. And at that moment, Jesus' authoritative word ran 16 miles across rivers and mountains and fields and rocks and instantly changed the physical chemistry of a boy's body. This is the authority Jesus has. And what's interesting is this dad, he really, up until this point, had not concerned himself at all with who Jesus was. He didn't care about his identity. He wasn't there to worship. He was there to have his son healed. Jesus, you need to know, has the authority. So the application is let's take comfort in Jesus' power over sickness and death. Now, this really is an interesting one. There's a sensitivity that I have when it comes to talking about healings, in particular, those physical healings, because every single one of us wants to live really, really bad. 
God put a fierce defensiveness inside of us to live, didn't he? And yet, now that we're sinners, our bodies are very, very frail. And the older you get, the more frail you feel. And it's interesting that so long as you're on this earth, Jesus' ability to heal is going to bring us great comfort. And so long as we're on this earth, the unpredictability of when Jesus will heal will bring us great pain. You see, you need to know that death was not part of God's original design. He didn't create us to die. He said, no, I created you to live with me forever. He says, there's this tree. Don't eat it. If you eat it, you're unfaithful and you'll die. You don't have to die. Don't eat it. We ate it. We sinned. We broke fellowship with God and brought the curse of death upon ourselves. And somehow in this equation, our heart still finds room to doubt God's faithfulness. He told us what was going to go down. Every time someone dies, God's being faithful. Does that make sense? Like, like it's hard. I hate death. It's an enemy. But God told us this was going to happen. When people stop dying and live to 200, then we should start casting judgment against God's faithfulness. Well, he's a liar. People are just living forever. He told us we would die. And yet, isn't it also true that it's the very presence of miracles within the scripture that contributes to our struggle when God doesn't heal someone that we love very much and we start to wonder why he wasn't faithful in this situation? If there was no such thing as physical miracles in the whole Bible, we would all just get used to the fact that someone gets sick and eventually they're going to die. It's the presence of miracles. We know Jesus can do it. So the question is, if Jesus did not intend to heal everyone, why did he heal anyone? Next week, we're going to find that he's going to walk back to Jerusalem. He's going to go to a pool. And there's going to be multitudes of sick people. He walks in, heals one, and leaves. He wasn't exhausted after the one. It's like, get it all done, Jesus. Go ahead and just, just boom. We're all, everybody, okay. Well, we're all happy. Let's all go home. Why one if he didn't intend to do all? And the reason is because every time he did one, he did it to show that he had the authority to heal us spiritually all. To heal all of us. That eventually that spiritual healing would lead to an eternal physical healing where we would take away all the pain and all the tears and all the sickness and all the death. You see, Jesus always works from the lesser to the greater. The problem is we get confused as to what's lesser and what's greater. As creatures with a desire to keep living and have our loved ones keep living, we value greater the physical healing. But as the eternal creator, he values the spiritual healing. So he does physical healings occasionally in order to show that he has the power to heal all of us spiritually forever. He came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he literally took the sting, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, out of death. So that death, even though it's our enemy, it's now a conquered foe. So that for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ... Death is now put on a leash and made to serve us by helping us transport from here to his presence. 
You see, only Jesus can do this. And this is what he did. That he has the authority over all sickness and over all, all death. So we can rest in him. The third thing I want to show you in last is this, is that Jesus is truly welcomed when we believe him at his word. If it is true that he is welcomed in a way that's honoring and he's also welcomed in a way that he considers to be dishonoring, then we need to understand what's what so that we participate regularly in welcoming him in a way that's honoring. So if you go back to where he was at in Samaria, all these people where he was being honored, it's interesting what we're told in verse 41. It says, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. In other words, the Samaritans, they didn't need any miracles. They weren't asking for a show. They only needed words. They believed Jesus' words. And in believing Jesus' words, they welcomed him and honored him. And then notice the official. He comes and he says, I need you to do something for me. So we always say, I want you to do something. I want you to walk 16 miles to come with me. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do something. I'm going to say something. And he says, go, you go, you go do something. Your son is healed. And amazingly, this man, he welcomes Jesus in a way that honors him. And it says this, it says that he walked away believing the word that Jesus spoke to him. In other words, this official, this dad, he walked 16 miles home and the only thing he had to stake his hope to was the credibility of Jesus' word. And for this man, he says, that's enough. And so for this man, he welcomed Jesus in a way that honored him. You see, friends, this kind of welcoming that Jesus likens to being honored is the kind that simply believes him at his word. Do you believe Jesus at his word? So the application for this third point is let's honor Christ by trusting him as a faithful Savior and Lord. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. What this means is, is this. Let's just say that you have two friends and they both give you advice. And their advice is something about something particularly important to you. And they're so certain about their advice that they say, not only is that what you need to do, but I'm so certain that that's what you need to do that I'm literally staking my very integrity and character on the line. This is what you should do. And their advice contradicts one another. So now if you pick any one of, their, of the two, not only are you picking their advice, but you're also scorning the other person's advice and their character that they have attached and stapled to their advice. You see, what the Bible says is that God and sin, they both make us promises to make us happy. They both stake their character on the line. And every time we choose obedience, we're honoring God because we're believing his word. And every time that we choose sin, we're not only not taking Jesus' advice, we're also casting judgment at his character that he has staked to his advice. And so it beckons us to ask a very simple question, and that is, do you really believe what Jesus said? 
You see, for those of you who have not trusted Jesus, I want to urge you this morning to believe his words regarding who he is and who you are. There's a sin problem that all of us have. But for those of us who trust Jesus, he takes away that sin problem. Matthew chapter 7, verses 23 and 24 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. You see, in this passage, Jesus is not asking us to come to a show at the gate. He's not asking us to admire the gate or talk about the gate or discuss the gate. He's telling us to get in the gate, enter the gate, believe. And so we would urge you, believe there's something personally at stake in his command when he says, I'm the son of God and you need to receive me. But for those of us who've already trusted Jesus, I would urge you to go on believing Jesus' words. You see, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they all want us doubting the reliability of God's word. This is why it shouldn't surprise any of us that the first recorded words of Satan in the whole Bible are, did God really say? He's doubting the word of God. So we need to remember that God is for us. If this God would die for us, we can trust that his good intentions span the whole breadth of life. So whether God's word is talking about the dignity of human life or human sexuality or generosity or purity or marriage or what, honoring your mom and dad, doesn't matter what it is. We as the people of God can believe that all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, every good work. So as a body, a body of believers, let's believe. Let's believe his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness that you pour out to us in Jesus. Thank you for examining the motives of our heart. And God, even as we prepare to sing another song, and before we do that, as we take an offering, we thank you for just a moment or two for us to think as these plates are being passed. And God, would you help us not to run off in our attention too quickly from what you've said in your word? Would you address our hearts? Would you unveil our motives? And God, would you incline our heart to help us to see that you are so for us? So God, we ask that you would address us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.